Okay, you have, after church here, you've got to give Corey a big hug or a hand or a high five or something like that because she has just saved your bacon. I, I told her about my sermon last night. She goes, no way, it's too long. It's going to be too hot. So she made me like, <laughs> I was up like really late. I cut like two and a half pages out. So I'm just going to die. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to dive right in. I thought my intro was so cool. I will email it to you if you want my full manuscript. It explains so much, but basically, so if you weren't here last week, we're in this two-part mini-series in 1 Corinthians called um, The Ideals and For Reals of Relationships. It's right in, in Corinthians, and the reason it's titled that is because the Bible often talks about these high ideals, and what Paul in this section that we're looking at in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is dealing with is like the for real, on-the-ground situation, and as a pastor, Paul is trying to navigate through um, relationship issues where there's no biblical precedent. There's no, like, law or command about a lot of things in life, really. So we're just going to dive right in. I'm already making this go longer than I have, so okay. We're going to pick up where we left off in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. We're going to go all the way to verse 16. We're going to skip 17 through 24, which I'm going to take next week as its own little thing, and we're going to continue on in verses 25 through 40. All right. You'll follow along. Okay. So anyway, last week, Paul dealt with this ultra-conservative sect within that church, which I know is surprising for Corinth, but there was a group that wasn't all licentiousness, and, uh, uh, and they were advocating for abstinence within marriage. And Paul was like, no, that's a bad idea. Uh, and so now we're going to pick up on his response in verse 7. Um, I'm going to work through this section by section but before I do, there's one vital piece of information that we need to discuss. These people in, in chapter 7 are asking all kinds of questions of Paul. He's responding to a letter that they wrote. And they're asking things like, hey, if I'm a widow, should I get remarried? What's the rule on that one? Or, uh, you know, I, I might want to get a divorce. What do you think about that? Or, um, I've married, I got married and I was not a Christian. Now I became a Christian, but my spouse isn't converted it's weird. Can I get separated? And so they're asking all of these types of questions. And I think it's important before we really dive into them to ask why were the Corinthians asking Paul these questions about marriage, about divorce, about being engaged, and what to do if you're a widow or a widower. One obvious reason is that in a place like Corinth, the people who became Christians there when Paul planted that church were from all kinds of different backgrounds. Yes, some of them were part of the synagogue and knew the Jewish faith, but others were Roman in, uh, of origin and Greek origin, and, and it was a seaport town. So all of these places around the Mediterranean, they were drawing different people with different backgrounds and different beliefs. So they actually had questions like, they didn't know how to do Christian marriage or, or you know, that kind of thing. Um, their cultures were different. But I think there's another factor that most likely brought on these questions from the Corinthians. There was something going on um, that Paul refers to in verse 26 as this present distress. Some set of circumstances that was causing anxiety among some of the people who were engaged to be married, which is referenced in verse 32. What was happening in Corinth during the year or two that Paul was writing to them? The answer is found in one of the most prestigious inscriptions ever found for a, civil, a, 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 a civic official. And that official's name was Tiberius Claudius Dipinus. Sorry, Dinipus. Cla <laughs> Tiberius Claudius Dinipus. You've heard of him, right? 
No, me neither, until I did the research for this. Why is that name so important? That name is important because Denipus filled many significant roles in the government, including at one point the master of ceremonies for the Isthmian Games, which is second only to the Olympic Games. And the, the master of ceremonies for the Isthmian Games was the highest governmental position in Corinth. But Denipus was not given the greatest honor that of any other civic official for his role as master of games, or for his role as chief engineer, or for his role on city council, or for his role as magistrate or judge, all three of which positions he filled. No, Denipus was given the greatest civic honor ever bestowed on a Corinthian leader for his role as curator anone, the curator of the grain supply. That evidence is important for two main reasons. One, the curator of the grain supply was a position that only existed when famines came. Normally, it would just be like merchants would handle uh, the ships, the grain would come off, it would go to the merchants, and the merchants would handle it, they'd barter, and people could shop around and get the best deal. But when there was a famine, Two things could happen. One, uh, there'd just be a plain shortage, so this curator position was formed, and they would stockpile all the grain, and the government would meet it out at a set price. That way, um, you know, merchants couldn't just rack up the price if they had little stores of grain and, and give it only to rich people, okay? The second reason this evidence is important is because Denipus served as curator during... Uh, curator of the grain during the years that most scholars place Paul's writings to the Corinthians in distress. So as we pick up our text, let's be thinking about the backdrop of extreme economic uncertainty, let alone general lack of grain, which was the, uh, one of the staple foods of the Corinthian culture. All right, verses 7 through 9. Uh, the, I'm going to read a lot of sections. I'm not going to have you stand up and sit down, so if you feel like you need to stand up, go ahead. <clears throat> Paul writes, I wish that all people were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to all the widowers and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn, or burn with passion, say some translations. Paul has mentioned his grace in being a celibate single man. In the present crisis, Paul wishes that unmarried people might be like him because it offers freedom that someone bound to provide for a family doesn't necessarily have. He just as quickly, though, admits that not everyone is given that grace of celibacy in singleness, at least not forever. Some people are given grace for marriage, and maybe that marriage would include children, maybe not. Others are given grace for singleness and celibacy. Verse 8 introduces the question, though, of widows and widowers. Now, in your English Bible, it might read something like this, uh, unmarried people and widows. But for a number of linguistic, cultural, and grammatical reasons, most scholars see Paul addressing those who are no longer married because of the death of a spouse in this instance. Now, this is an instance for Paul of pastoral counsel trying to make a decision that honors Jesus and is good for his congregation where there's no direct biblical teaching on this issue. I mean, the Jews had Levite marriage where, you know, if a husband dies, the wife is supposed to marry the, uh, the brother, but that was kind of outdated by that point anyway, and it certainly wasn't a thing for the Roman culture or a Greek culture. 
And Jesus never says, if there's a great famine and you're unable to feed yourself, this is what you should do if your spouse dies. I mean, is that in like, I don't know, that's not in any gospel I've ever read. So Paul recognizes that economically and socially, this is a tough time to be in Corinth. In that culture, widows and widowers would generally seek remarriage because widows would need a male figure to care for her needs uh, unless she had a, a wealthy husband or brother. She may even still have children, and since uh, husbands and wives often died much younger in those days, the children might be quite small. As for the widower, he may well have children as well and could need a woman's care in a culture where men didn't do much with kids except discipline them and apprentice boys. So you see, Paul is giving advice, not a command. He says, in this current climate, it's probably best if you're able to stay as I am, single. Regardless, he says, if it's too hard to remain single, then go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn. Either way, Paul is giving advice, not a command. He then moves on to the next question. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Right. In this case, Paul doesn't have to guess. He has Jesus. Scripture is clear that God's ideal is not to divorce. Few things trouble marriage, though, as badly as economic troubles, financial hardship. People are often at their worst when they feel inadequate to provide or underappreciated. People tend to think in those situations that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence when hard times come. If they must separate, then they should consider themselves bound to their spouse and seek reconciliation rather than remarry. But again, Paul is giving an extremely nuanced response to a question that likely had everything to do with the present distress and not a general question about divorce. I mean, after all, Jesus talks about divorce in much more detail. Uh, Emma read from Matthew 19 just a minute ago. That's just one passage that Jesus talks about it. And Paul has those all at his disposal. So clearly Paul isn't trying to give like a general answer about marriage and divorce for all time to stand here. He's talking about this particular thing where people are considering maybe breaking up because of the economics of the situation. Verses 12 through 16 get a little more interesting. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. So again, now he's going with his opinion. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified or made holy through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether or not you will save your wife? In this section, we can clearly see or guess that the Corinthians have asked Paul what to do if they're married to a non-Christian spouse. This is not addressing whether or not a Christian should marry a non-Christian. Paul talks about that in other places and is fairly clear that that's generally a bad idea, although it works out sometimes. Um, 
He's not talking about that here. In the Corinthian situation, it's most likely like this. Two non-Christians got married. One of them began to follow Jesus when Paul came into town preaching the gospel. The other one did not. What do we do? And think about this. Back in those days, no one was an atheist like we have atheists today. So it's not like, to use a cliche, a Christian wife, non-Christian husband. Christian wife goes to church on Sunday. Christian husband, or non-Christian husband stays home and watches football. Okay? It wasn't like that. Everybody was religious in those days. So the issue then is one of the spouses is now a Christian. The other spouse is something else, worshiping other gods or goddesses or many of them and doing these other practices. Now, when that Christian filled with the Holy Spirit begins to have eerie, wiggly feelings about this and discerns, oh my goodness, you're actually worshiping the demons behind those idols, as Paul will say later on, that's reason to kind of freak out. So they're writing to Paul, like, what do we do? Do we stay in this weird relationship, or should we separate? And Paul gives advice not to leave the spouse. He says, I don't have a word from the Lord on this. Listen, it's not like in the Bible. Um, I've never heard a saying from Jesus that addresses your question here. But I wonder if in the back of Paul's mind, he's seeing the life of Jesus play out as the apostles handed down to him. In story after story, Jesus mingles with people that according to Jewish law would make him unclean. He touches dead people. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. He interacts with Gentiles. And yet what we see in the Gospels is not Jesus becoming defiled, but whoever he touches, he makes whole and clean and gives opportunity to be become holy. So if there were children involved and the couple splits, there was the risk that the Christian spouse would lose the children to the pagan court. But if they stay together, the children could be influenced by the believing parents. And in many stories, both ancient and current, couples where one spouse becomes a Christian after they were married often have a way of drawing the other or the rest of the family into the church. Paul is trying to navigate some tricky waters the unbelieving spouse is not bound by the Christian view of marriage, uh, of marriage and divorce. So if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, he says, well, okay, you can't really control that. But the Christian spouse is not supposed to initiate leaving or divorce. Historian and sociologist Rodney Stark argues that Christianity spread throughout Rome in the early centuries primarily because of aristocratic Christian women. It went a little bit like this. A high-born man and his wife, steeped in pagan culture, high Roman, they're in the senator class, and that means that the, the man has political power, and then his sons would grow up to have political power, because it's a name thing, it's a family thing. Well, the wife becomes a Christian. Why? Because in Roman culture, wives are just there for the domestic things and having kids. But in the church, this wife is filled with the Spirit, and is able to teach, and prophecy, and have roles of leadership. And it's empowering. And while her husband never comes to faith, who raises those kids? That wife. And those boys then become senator class, and they have become Christians along the way, and now they have a voice of influence and persuasion, and their ethics are different than their pagan brothers in office. And you see how this goes. And eventually, uh, the tide is turned in the Roman Empire um, not entirely in a good way. I'm not whitewashing that whole Constantine scene, but you can see how this has played out. 
Next, we're going to deal with verses 17 through 24 uh, in more detail next week. But we're going to move now to verses 25 through 38. This is a longer section. Just bear with me. Now concerning, and your Bible, mine does too, probably says virgins. I'm going to deal with that in a minute. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that it's good in view of the present distress that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brothers and sisters, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away." Now, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who's unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, and she may be holy both in body and spirit, but the one who's married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit. Not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if anyone thinks that he, any man thinks that he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin or his fiance, if she is past her youth and it must be so, then let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his heart to keep his own virgin, he will do well. So then, both he who gives his own virgin in marriage and does well, and the one who does not give her in marriage will do better. Woo! That's a lot. First, two terms. The first one, in many of our English Bibles that we see, um, uh, the opening now, concerning virgins, that is the line. Throughout this passage, the evidence stacks up informing us that the force of that word is not so much virgin in the sense of sexual purity as in the sense of fiancé. That's how um, that, that term could be used. Second, having already dealt with divorce and the thought of leaving one spouse for religious reasons, verse 27 where it talks about staying with a wife and leaving a wife almost certainly refers uh, to a... Um, a a person being engaged. You have to remember in this time period, people weren't just engaged like we get engaged. Um, an engagement is, I hate to say this, but sometimes engagements in our culture are kind of loose. Like until you walk down the aisle, it's, uh, you know, anything could happen. And we have movies, all kinds of movies about the bride, like not showing up or the groom running out and it's just done. Didn't happen like that in these days. People were betrothed, which was a legally binding thing. So basically, they lived at mom and dad's house, maybe for a year, up to a year long, but they're, dep- they're betrothed. They are legally bound to each other. So if one of them maybe fools around with somebody else, that is legally adultery. And in order to cancel that betrothal, they have to get legally divorced. It's kind of a, a more binding agreement. Uh, so, so Paul is saying, hey, if you're not bound to a fiancé, well, if you can handle not like burning with passion, like during this crisis, it might be best for you to stay single, like live with mom and dad for a while, or, you know, and he's saying the same thing to the woman. Uh, you have to also remember that there was no birth control in those days. I don't, 
just stating the obvious. Roman women, and this is horrible, sometimes they would get abortions, but they would often leave unwanted babies exposed. And they had designated spots around each town for this. It was almost like a, strange to say, but a pagan holy site. And they would just leave babies on these flat rocks, and they would die usually in the cold of the night, or wild animals would come. And the issue here is that for Christians, that was never an option. You see, the Christian church early on made a huge impact by being the types of people who would go to those holy sites and take those children and adopt them. So part of Paul's issue with, remember in the beginning of this chapter, he tells married couples, like, you need to be intimate. Only, you know, withhold sex from each other during special times, maybe for prayer or like prayer retreat or something like that, but you need to be intimate. So being intimate in that world meant you're going to have babies, probably, if you're able. And that meant more mouths to feed in the midst of famine, didn't it? Because Christians did not have abortion or exposure of children as an option to them, okay? So Paul is saying, think about this. Like, if you're not already engaged, if you're not already uh, betrothed or married, you, you might just want to hold off. Two things tell me that this was not Paul's stance on marriage for all time. Two things tell me that this advice is specific to the Corinthians during this particular famine. First, in the other letters like the Thessalonian correspondence, Paul is dealing with people who are looking at the hard times they're in, and they're thinking, hey, the world's going to end anyway, so I tell you, we're going to stop working and we're just going to have, like, worship meetings and not do anything in the world. And we're going to neglect our families. And people were breaking up marriages and teaching against marriage. And you know what Paul says to those people? Get your butt to work. Have an eternal perspective, by all means. That's part of being a Christian. But you are to be salt and light. You are abdicating your role on this planet when you don't do good work, when you're not engaged either in making your own family or investing in others in the church, you see? So Paul is strongly for engagement in the world. He's not saying to withdraw. He's not saying never get married. He's simply concerned as a pastor that during the hardship, these young couples don't put undue anxiety on themselves. The time is shortened, and we're going to deal with that more next week. Uh, but suffice it to say, Paul is talking about here, order your priorities. And the Roman world, singles were looked down upon with suspicion. Women weren't free like women are today uh, without being attached to a man. Women couldn't go down the street by themselves or get a job by themselves. Marriage was a status symbol. Paul is saying, in light of the fact that we are Christians awaiting a glorious coming of the kingdom, not being married, it's not the end of the world. Be free to do what the situation calls for. Second reason I don't think this is for all time, Paul tells married couples in the beginning of this chapter, keep on having intimate relationships with each other. There were people who wrote him wanting to abstain from sex so they could be closer to Jesus. He says, no way. Um, you don't understand your own body. He says, the body is created by God and it's good. The body was created sexual and that is good within marriage. Um, you abstaining from the things of life is not holy. It's not good. Which is also why he says, if a man is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin or his fiance, hey, just get married. The, the force of that word unbecomingly, all in the ancient literature, not just the Bible, is strong with sexual connotation. And it isn't so much, hey, are you sexually attracted to your fiance? I mean, 
that's part of the deal, right? Every fiance is sexually attracted to each other. Um, the idea and the force of this word is they're actually overstepping their bounds. They're going to third base or more, and it's like, hey, you know what? You might as well just sanctify what you're already doing. Just get married. <laughs> like, grain crisis or not, uh, it's better that way, okay? Which is a conversation uh, I often have with young couples because <laughs> um, I think our uh, extended adolescence in this culture is, we were never made to be, like, dating into our, our 30s, I think. Just, just get married. Let's talk. Premarital counseling together. Okay. <clears throat> so... <laughs> There's a lot more thus saith Paul in this section than thus saith the Lord. And one question that kind of comes up, then, then why preach on a passage like this? The one reason is because it's still scripture. And I wanted to go through these passages because they've frequently bis- been misunderstood in the church and abused. Um, some movements within the church around the world still teach that celibacy is a higher calling than marriage. And they base it on these passages And that just doesn't stack up against the rest of the biblical witness. It doesn't even stack up with Genesis, let alone anything else that Paul or Jesus has to say. So there's that extreme. And then on the other hand, some movements, and this is more in the Protestant tradition, um, have exalted marriage to the pinnacle of Christian existence to which, uh, to the the fact where anyone who's single is like, uh, I'm supposed to get married or else I'm not a whole person, which is also not a teaching of Scripture. And Paul would say, to each is given a gift, and not all the gifts are the same. To each is giving a calling, not all callings are the same. But if the call is from God, it's nowhere less important whether it's a calling to singleness or a calling to married or whatever it is. What's important is that we're called to life in Christ. Okay, so I wanted to work through those passages because avoiding them, I think, does violence if you had some wrong thoughts about those things. But second, I wanted to make some observations, and this is Dorian bringing this home. (laughs) I wanted to make some observations about how to make decisions as followers of Jesus when there's no clear biblical command. And you know that that is most of life. If you just think about it for a minute, does it say anything in the Sermon on the Mount or any other place in the Bible about current bioethics, stem cell research? Um, What about medical ethics? Um, uh, the sophisticated uh, arguments for uh, euthanasia and these types of things. What about cloning? What about technology? I mean, just, just uh, as I raise kids and like screen time, like how much screen time is too, no- too much? And is any screen time? And what should the, you know, media, all of these kind of things were things that aren't in the Bible because they didn't exist then. So how do we as followers of Jesus make decisions about these issues? I want to discern three categories that I hope you find helpful. And if you are just, Nicole, if you're anxious to write something down, now would be the time. But okay. <laughs> um, three categories. The first one is motive. You, you look at how Paul makes these decisions when he says, not the Lord, but I say. And you, you can't help but just discern the fact that he always wants to honor the Lord first. He's not, he's not going to give somebody advice that would bring shame upon the Lord or upon the church. His motive is to honor God. And close second to that, and I think they're interrelated, is that he has deep care and concern for the congregation. Where somebody wants to do that something that is just going to lead to death, he says don't do it. But in a lot of these gray areas, he wants to give nuanced, thoughtful 
advice that honors the Lord and meets people where they're really at. He doesn't want to put burdens on people that they don't need to have. Remember when Gentiles started to come into the church, the first council wasn't Nicaea or or any of these places. The first council was the Council of Jerusalem, where people were saying, hey, these new Gentile dudes that that were coming into the church, they need to get circumcised. There was a council about that, and they said, well, wait a minute, why? They're not becoming Jewish, they're becoming Christian. So let's not burden them with that right. If they want to become Christian, don't serve false gods. Serve the poor. Worship the Lord. They don't need circumcision. So remember, that that pastoral concern is to not burden people. He wants them to be free from anxiety. That's his motive. In the world, you have trouble. Take heart. The Lord has overcome the world, right? Okay, so number one is motive. Honor the Lord and care for the congregation. Number two is the mindset with which Paul goes through uh, these decision makings. The whole counsel of Scripture for Paul is authority. In a world where morals and ethics sway back and forth with the popular opinions of society, the Scriptures are the starting point and ending point for Paul. And where there's a tiebreaker between Scripture and the whims and opinions of popular culture, Paul goes with Scripture. And I think we would do well to try and do that ourselves. I'm not saying that that's easy. I'm just saying it's the the, the mode we see discerned here uh, in Paul. And specifically, we know that the character of God, uh, we know the character of God because of his son, Jesus. In the first chapter, Paul writes that we who have faith in Christ have the mind of Christ. And through the ministry of the Spirit, Jesus guides us. So we've got motive to do right by God, to do right by each other, and we've got our mindset, which is to read everything through the filter of Scripture, and specifically uh, uh, the life and character uh, of Christ that we see. Which brings us third to method. Yes, Jesus speaks through the Spirit. Yes, it says we have the mind of Christ. And yet because of my sinful heart and your sinful heart, we can't just go away into our own corner and say, you know, the Lord told me, and so I'm going to do A, B, and C. It would be wise to check what you think the Lord is telling you with Scripture. And not just your interpretation of Scripture, but with maybe your small group or the church interpretation of Scripture. And not just this church's interpretation of Scripture, but we also, part of um, being a good biblical person is to give tradition a vote. We don't, we don't read tradition like it's authoritative, like the council of this says that, so, but, but we do give it a vote, right? So it's important to read generationally, and congregationally, as well as listening to the Lord individually. So that's method. Dr. John Stackhouse wrote a book last year on Christian epistemology. That's a fancy word for how we come to know things. It's called Need to Know. And in that book, he outlines what's called the Protestant, the Protestant penta, Pentalectic. That just means five things, okay? So <laughs> Pentalectic. Five main sources by which humans come to know things. And And Stackhouse begins with Scripture, just like Paul. Everything should be filtered through Scripture. But under Scripture, there are four other elements. Experience, tradition, scholarship, so experts in different fields, and the arts. In fact, uh, in verse 33 of of this passage that Paul writes... He's quoting a man who wrote a work called The Comedy uh, from 200 years before Paul, but it was popular. It was resurgent in in popularity in Corinth at that time. So Paul quotes that to support his own 
his own argument, but he's quoting, he's quoting, he's drawing from the arts there. Experience, tradition, scholarship, and the arts, all under Scripture. And all that because we're living in a very complex world in an increasingly changing society. And for some, there's a tendency to just want to, as a Christian, put their head in the sand and escape and not think of it. And you know what? I'm just going to hang out with Christian people, and I'm just going to go to church, and I'm just going to ride this thing out. And that is Christian escapism. That is, in many ways, abdicating our role here on earth. For others, fear of a changing world causes an opposite knee-jerk reaction, and they head to the streets, and they oversimplify very complex issues with judgmental rhetoric. And it's almost like their head's in the sand in a different way. They don't want to hear anything. They don't want to listen to people. They're just going to say in a very rude way what they think is right. Still others try so hard not to offend anyone that they accommodate to culture and forsake the word of God altogether. And thankfully, our passage this evening reminds us that God does speak. He does care. We don't have to hide our head in the sand. We don't have to get aggressive with people. And we don't have to throw out the word of God. He does want us to use our minds. And the church needs people in all walks of life. I was thinking the church needs Collins out there holding Silas as a good dad. But they also need Collins uh, in, in his expertise and growing expertise in energy policy, Right? Because that's, that's a thing I have no clue about. But we need people who think about those things. And we need people like Ryan Wasserman, the chair of philosophy at Western, who thinks about ethics in a Christian way. He thinks hard about complex issues that most of us don't have the aptitude for or the time for. We need people like Aaron and Meg Nelson, who through the arts add beauty and value to our culture. We need storytellers. Uh, Keith Turley reminds me uh, of his writing. Uh, Christy Wilson, I, I'm not going to say any more, but she does a little bit of writing too. Uh, and you know, Josh Burdick, um, uh, think of Brian Russell. These guys tell story on film, whether it's for a wedding or for a documentary or whatnot. I mean, uh, they add value to the world. The, the world needs people like our teachers who invest in students and not only teach them things, but teach them how to learn. We need our labor force craftspeople. We need our civil servants, our students, our healthcare professionals, and business owners, and citizens. As a preacher, when I'm up here, I'm, when I'm not preaching Paul's uh, um, advice, I'm preaching ideals from Scripture. When I step down, I go home, I'm a parent just like you, and we've got to figure out how to live those ideas in the real world. Some of you are going to think about how to do that in an education. Some of you are going to think about how to do that at the WTA. Some of you are going to think about how to do that when you're painting houses and raising kids and leading churches. So we need each other in our vocations. Um, and together we, we, we come and we figure out how to follow Jesus in a complex world. And I'm so thankful that the Lord speaks to us today. So let's give thanks. Father, we thank you that we are not left here uh, stumbling around in the dark trying to figure it out on our own. We thank you that even in a very complex world, you have given us your word uh, as a compass, uh, as a revelation of who you are and the character you have and the character that you're building into us.
and you send us out as your women and men and boys and girls. You've given each one expertise, experiences, perspective to help each of the others navigate very tricky waters in very tricky times. Lord, we pray for an influx of humility in our own hearts, an openness to listen to one another and obey your word. And we pray for wisdom. Amen.